Just a friendly reminder that the opinions expressed on this show are not worth a Canadian penny, so disregard anything you hear that might get anyone in trouble. And despite some of the great ideas you may hear, don't try them at home. Go to friend's house instead. Welcome to Slamfire Radio. This is episode 306 for May 30th, 2019. I am your only host today, Adriel. <laughs> Kelly and Trevor and McFly are uh, are not available uh, today. Uh, they're out like maple seeding and doing range stuff and flying and all that kind of fun stuff. So uh, just me today. Uh, what we did in guns this week is brought to you by the Calgary Shooting Center, Canada's premier firearms retailer. Right now, you can buy any SIG AR-15 for between $1,800 and $2,100 and receive a Surefire M300 Weapon Light, same as what the RCMP is running, for $100. And it, that is normally $400. So check that out at the Calgary Shooting Center. Just move around my screens here so I can see what I'm doing there. I got the notes. All right. Uh, in terms of what I was up to on Saturday, I was at the Chaz Open House. Uh, this was our uh, kind of open house. Anyone can show up, check things out, um, learn about the range if they want to, uh, if they want to join the range, and then see the different leagues. So we had the service rifle guys running a service rifle booth. Uh, we had uh, Cowboy Action uh, uh, running a stage. We had Three Gun running uh, two stages. We had a, a twenty-five meter shoot. We had kids shoot free twenty-twos. Uh, the kids can shoot the 22s and uh yeah it was it, it was extremely busy the weather was fantastic uh and uh, had a lot of people out there a lot of listeners uh, showed up too a couple of a uh, couple of slam fire listeners came up and said hi which is really cool i'm sorry i didn't get a chance to really uh, chat too long just because we had such a, a backlog of people who wanted to to shoot a three-gun stage so uh that, that my priority at the at that at uh, open house was running as many people as possible through a three gun stage. And, and that's really what we designed the stage for and, and tried to tried to do that day. And then uh, after, after sitting out in the sun and out at the range for 12 hours, I was like, Oh, you know what I should do? I should go to that pistol match. I was talking about on Thursday. So uh, I went and hit that up. That was the uh, Bonneville uh, sport shooters, BSSA. They were running a, a pistol match uh, on Saturday. Uh, again, met a couple of listeners there. There was uh, uh, Tobin I met, uh, Mark P, who's been on the show before, and uh, uh, a couple of others were, were there as well. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, Mark with a K, uh, who, you know, we, we mess around a little bit with uh, uh, spelling of names and that kind of thing. <laughs> he was putting my name into the into the practice score tablet. And he's like, oh, your last name. How do you spell that again? And they got me to spell it out. I was like, huh, that was weird. And then whatever later on, uh, towards the end of the day, I took a look at uh, took a look at practice score, and uh, and my name was the la- my last name was spelled one hundred percent correct, but my first name was Andriel. <laughs> I see what you did, Mark. I see what you did. <laughs> uh, very good. Um, let's see. Okay, there was a couple of things that I wanted to do well at this match, um, and I, I remember them because I wrote them down. One of them was memorizing my stage plans. Uh, I wanted to pay particular attention to that and uh this was a great match for that they put together a really interesting uh stage design so a lot of the stages were uh exactly out of uh they were just standard ipsic stages not standard not classifiers but they were really interesting really complicated some of them were uh, absolutely our, our first stage of the day was a memory stage barrels and and, and targets that, uh, that you could see from different positions um so it was a good thing that i um wanted to put a little bit more time into that and uh I, it was to a point so i i, I did my stage walkthroughs memorized my stage design uh, my stage shoot throughs um but what one thing that i found was that i memorized them and when i did my shoot through afterwards i did it too slowly so when I actually shot the stage, uh, I found myself thinking I was done too quickly. So I was, I, I had shot and I was like, am I done? Am I done? 
and I was looking around for other like other targets that I had forgotten about because I was I finished too quickly, but it was because I had practiced too slowly. So one of the things that I might want to try next time is uh, practicing at speed or or just visualizing myself moving quickly because uh, just walking it and and uh, and air gunning it. Um, I when it came time to actually perform, I was actually thinking I was too fast, thinking I was leaving targets behind and I, I wasn't really leaving any behind. So uh, that was uh, that was really interesting. And, and it, it, was, it was a fun match. I mean, uh, like one of the things I realized just shooting that match, I would probably shoot a, like a lot more Ipsic uh, if it was convenient. And uh, and if there was more around me, I was uh, I was just looking at the um, uh, Ipsic website here uh, are my the next matches that I could possibly go to. Uh, one of them's 3.75 hours drive. One's 4.2 hours drive. One's a five and a half hour drive. One's a three hour drive. That's Bonneville. I might do that one. Another one was 2.2. That's at the Rocky Rod and, uh, Rod and Gun Club. That's only two hours to go, but I have a wedding to attend. So like, it makes it difficult for me to uh, imagine shooting just at, like Ipsic when the the matches seem to be all over Alberta. They don't seem to be centralized around Edmonton. And uh, a lot of them are in the south. I think Tabor does a lot. And uh, uh, there's not really any club around me that seems to do consistent pistol practices either, like a pistol league or a men's league or something like that. Because if there was, I'd probably shoot it. I'd probably uh, I'd probably do more of that stuff. So I don't know. Food for thought. I mean, whereas like three gun, I'm like, I've got monthly club here. Uh, we've got uh, a monthly club in Cold Lake. We've got um, uh, the clubs down in Calgary. There's two of them down there. She's doing three gun um, and again, all over the place. So uh, I'll probably keep shooting uh, three gun because uh, I like shooting three gun and because it's, it's it much more convenient for me. Well, we need, I think what that means is that we need uh, an Ipsic club in Edmonton that shoots more regularly. I know that uh, Phoenix puts on the odd match, but we need something that's a little bit more regular and outdoors would be nice too, because you know, the smoke blows away and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that, that was my weekend. Uh, this today, last week I thought I was going to, uh, Sherwood park to talk about maple seed. That's actually tonight. I checked the calendar just before I left last time and, uh, I found out that I had my weeks mixed up, but, uh, so I'm going to head out there, uh, after the show here and, uh, talk to him a little bit about maple seed. Uh, upcoming events. Uh, so Ryan McLean has mentioned to us that our registration for the Meaford Long Range Steel Challenge is now open. If you're interested in helping out at this event, please contact Ryan McLean through the MLRSC Facebook group or visit Practice Score. There's some information on there to uh, uh, get in touch with them. Uh, the other event that we want to talk about here was the ninth annual Podcasters Charity Shoot in Drumheller. Tickets are still available for that. They're on Eventbrite. Just search uh, Podcasters Charity Shoot. There's going to be the ch- uh, Podcasters Charity Shoot. Um, Gavin from uh, uh, Ragnarok Tactical is also going to do a Stop the Bleed course uh, that day. So lots to do. And the nice thing is that in, if you're not from the area, if you're not from if you're from uh, BC or Saskatchewan, you drive in for this thing. Uh, Drumheller is actually a pretty cool place. There's a lot, a lot to do around there. So uh, if you want to bring the family around, this is a charity shoot you actually could bring the family to because uh, there's the Royal Tyrell uh, Dinosaur Museum. Uh, and then there's also the uh, uh, Badlands around there. It's a bunch of really cool stuff. There's like a coal mine and a bunch of really cool things around there that you can check out. Maple Seed is heading out east and there's still spots available for that. So there's Restigouche, uh May 31st. That's tomorrow. That's probably where Trevor's at right now, actually, is uh, is helping out with that. And Kelly, actually. They're probably both there. That's where they are. Uh, there'll be a Brettlebane PEI. Brettlebane, I think I think that's correct. Uh, that'll be June 2nd. And then Fredericton will be June 6th. You can head over to mapleseedrifleman.com to find out more about those. Uh, and the news, uh, I'll probably wait until we've got some of the other guys on to uh, to talk more about this. But the first one was that C-71 was voted in. So uh, that legislation uh, did. There's one more step that it needs to do. It needs a royal assent, but uh, it's it's ready to go now. Uh, so we'll talk probably talk more about that uh, next week once we've got a little bit more information on, on some of the repercussions of that. Uh, the next piece of news I have here. Salesforce uh, bans customers from selling semi-autos and 10-round mags. So uh, if you're a regular person and you don't do a lot of like B2B or, or work a lot with uh, um, sales software, you probably don't know Salesforce. Salesforce is a really big 
uh, sales CRM. It's it's software that that uh, companies use for managing customers and that kind of thing. And they're they're banning uh, semi autos and uh, a, more than ten run mags and and that kind of thing. So customers who are on that platform are now going to have to start looking for something else out there. So um, it's kind of a kind of a painful thing, but uh, looks like that's happening. Uh, the next one is that. Uh, the feds now this is this is actually a, a global news article that i was reading uh and the the title of the article is feds look to clamp down on guns quote designed to hunt people end quote so that piece is new uh the the quotes from bill blair are still the same he's still talking about um uh, they'll go to any means necessary inc- up to and including a, a, a ban on handguns. But I don't think that he doesn't think that that will have the, all of the necessary effect. Uh, this new thing that they're mentioning is that uh, Blair's office was saying that assault style rifles are military weapons designed to hunt people, not animals in a way that maximizes the body count at minimum effort. And that's uh that's a bit of a new way to uh, to think about that, and a new uh, a new quote out of them, if you will. And uh, it's a little bit concerning because, again, assault weapon is not uh, defined, and uh, there's uh, uh, you know we're always worried about how they're how they would actually like lay that out because they haven't really <laughs> because they're not they're not gunnies. They haven't really uh, done a really decent job at uh, defining out what this all means. So uh, a little bit worrisome there. Uh, for the new gun stuff, what I'm going to do is share that on screen with you guys. Let's go over there. Now, one of the things I wanted to share with you guys on the new gun stuff, Double Tap has Cajun Gunworks parts in stock. Now, Cajun Gunworks is a really well-known uh, uh, parts manufacturer for the CZ uh, Shadow uh, line of, uh, of pistols, and they've got some really cool springs and firing pins and triggers and, and whatnot. So it's really encouraging to see Double Tap bringing these in because uh, now we're going to see those uh, start to see them uh, in Canada. You can see that they're popular because there's only one thing left in stock <laughs> and that's the ultralight firing pin kit. Uh, but this is good. This means that uh, if Double Tap starts bringing in Cajun Gunwork stuff more often, that'll be uh, incredible. Cajun doesn't export directly to Canada, so you can't buy directly from them. Uh, so it's going to be great for these uh, for us to have a local uh, uh, Canadian retailer that's bringing these things in. That's fantastic. And the next one is this uh, this Canuck, uh, Canuck Victor. This is a competition ready shotgun. It's a Turkish shotgun, and uh, pretty interesting in that it comes with a lot of the competition ready features that you'd want in uh, a three gun shotgun, for example. Uh, so it's got extended controls. Uh, the port job is is done on it. It's got a, an extended tube on it. So it's got a lot of the stuff that you would want on a competition shotgun already. And uh, and it's all ready to go. So we should start seeing that uh, showing up across the country as well. And the last one, the last one, I, more of a, a general comment. Uh, AR uppers and lowers are very hard to find. You know, if you remember last week, we talked uh uh, we brought up a, a video that Tracy had put out saying like, hey, go buy an AR because they might go pro here. We've got it on good authority that they will. So um, AR uppers and lowers are, are really hard to find right now. They've they've had a couple of runs on them uh, where they show up. Uh, uh, True North Arms, for example, they brought in 300 matched uppers and lowers and they sold them out like that. So uh, lots of uh, lots of ARs being moved. There are still are uh, a bunch of full rifles being sold. So like Cabela still has the uh, MMP sports and, and there's a couple of other retailers that still have those. It's just the uppers and lowers that are uh, in really high demand and, and really difficult to find right now. A lot of people are, are buying those ARs to get grandfathered in. So in case um, uh, the government uses an order in council to ban the AR 15s and prohibit them, uh, those people want that, uh, that classification on their license. So, that's what they're doing there is uh, is purchasing a lower so that the so that they qualify <laughs> they're in in before the lock and uh, and they can you know buy ARs after the fact right um, we have a, a, a survey still available on our Facebook and on our website right now um, we're gonna close this thing right away so if you have feedback on the podcast please let us know uh, and thank you again to all those who have submitted their feedback. Um, one of the things that we, we keep trying to do with this podcast is, is continue to improve it and make it better. So, uh, and the, the only way that we can really do that is, is by you guys telling us, 
uh, how you want it improved and uh, constructively telling us uh, what we need to do to make it better. So again, we really appreciate the uh, the feedback we've got. We've already got over 100 responses. So we've got lots of, uh, of different viewpoints in there. Uh, and that's good. That means that uh, we'll be able to um, make moves that are going to uh, pl- get more of their, our listeners, uh, more of what they want out of the show. All right, why don't we move on to the main topic? And welcome to the show, Rob from British Muzzle Loaders. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hey, how are you? Excellent. I mean, uh, it's a little bit smoky here in uh, here in Alberta. We've got some uh, fire action going on, but uh, tis the season. <laughs> tis the season. Yeah, it's either uh, frozen or on fire. It seems these days. Um, <laughs> and campfire but, uh, season lasts about that long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, maybe uh, maybe just to start off with, so uh, British Muzzle Loaders, you've got a YouTube channel. Tell us uh, tell us what it's all about. What do you focus on, and uh, and what are you into? Well, British Muzzle Loaders is what I like to term, and the term's been used in other areas as well, but an historical shooting channel. So what that means, well, to me, they're obviously open to uh, all kinds of interpretation, but it's the use of you know historical firearms in an historical context. And in my case, it's a military con. So all the rifles that I feature on the channel are old, predominantly 19th century, but not exclusively, mm-hmm. uh, military rifles. And I, the, the channel sort of strives to showcase these uh, sort of semi-individually uh, within their own eras of, of history um, and all the supporting sort of aspects to them, which means not only the, the firing of them, but the loading of them and the, the reloading of them, as the case may be, uh, but also... Uh, sort of the way the military used them, which sort of goes down a bit of a rabbit hole sometimes as far as uh, the drill is associated. Because, the, you know, armies, especially in the 19th century, were predominantly, you know, driven by the maneuver of, of men on the battlefield and the delivery of that firepower uh, on the same. So, you know, there's you carry a rifle a certain way, you use it a certain way, you get taught how to, how to shoot it a certain way. And so all these things come into play. And I try and kind of, as you say, pick a specific rifle and sort of develop a package of videos around that, uh, dealing with various aspects of it. And then, you know, moving off and branching off in comparisons with other rifles and whatnot. So that in a nutshell to me is what historical shooting is all about. It's always based on uh, a few different specific aspects, which are one of, of course, is an original or a, a good quality reproduction, uh, a firearm uh, and ammunition, which is also important. Uh, but it also includes the use of, of documentation from there and that kind of thing, uh, which is as accurate as you can get it. Uh, and equipment. Now, by equipment, I mean, uh, you know, in the military context, soldiers need to carry ammunition and all their equipment when they go uh, into the field. And that has an effect on the way you shoot, the way you manipulate the, uh, the firearm and whatnot. So that comes into play as well. And then sort of to top it off and make a perhaps a, a more interesting presentation, I have injected items of clothing which again, don't necessarily have much to do with the shooting, but it's more for the sort of the fluff on the outside to make it look good. Uh, but those are the sort of aspects that I consider to be part of historical shooting. And that's what the channel is all about. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the videos I was just watching uh, just recently here was you, you were shooting out to 400 yards with a, a Martini Henry. And there was a couple of interesting things about that video. One was, uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people have like, you know, banged steel at, at 400 with modern firearms out, out in, in, in the bush or in the mountains or something like that. But to see it done in uh, in period clothing with <laughs> all the stuff was really interesting because one of the things you did was um, you had your standard kit on and you took some of the kit off and used some of the kit in your shooting positions to make for a more stable shooting position. So that part was really interesting because you have to... Uh, uh, probably both consult some field manuals as well as get a little bit creative with uh, with how you use some of that stuff to to get like a, a good shooting position, a good solid position. Um, one of the things I noticed, you had this this crazy little rest that was like modular. It's got like four legs on it, and it's got like a rounded top. Tell t- tell me about that. Where, where's that thing from? Right, it's from right here. <laughs> um, the uh, to sort of draw back to the issue of equipment. Um, typically, uh, you know, your your personal equipment carried, especially in the, well, it does still to this day to a point, but especially back then, the 19th century in the sort of first half of the 20th century, your personal equipment um, contained not only ammunition, but water and food. 
and as a method to carry some of the like meat ration and that kind of stuff, but also to cook it, especially at an individual level or maybe between you and your farming, your, your, your partner, so to speak, uh, you needed a mess tin, which uh, for the 19th century was predominantly of one general pattern. And that mm-hmm. pattern uh, looked like a sort of a, a semicircle that with a flat back and a rounded front and then sort of it's like a mini pot set that you'd get at the camping store today. Only the, instead of being round, like a pot set sort of it's semicircular. So that was a feature of, you know, sets of equipment from sort of just at the uh, end of the Napoleonic Wars and, and that ending in 1815 all the way through to the, I think in the 1937 pattern equipment, uh, the square rectangular mess tin came into service. So it lasted for an exceptionally long time. And it's uh, on the various sets of equipment. This mess tin was carried typically in a cover, although not always, but strapped somehow, incorporated into it. That along with a great coat, which is a big, heavy sort of calf length woolen coat for bad weather and whatnot. So these two items specifically, uh, you know, they're they're omnipresent as far as military equipment in the 19th century goes. And what I thought that in order to put things in a sort of historical or semi-historical context was that. Uh, when I first developed them, I didn't have a great coat, which I do now. Um, and I, I didn't have a mess tin. But I thought, how can I take those two things and make them applicable to shooting? Because obviously, shooting is the focus of the channel. Mm-hmm. And in my brainstorming, I thought, well, you know, a great coat sometimes gets substituted for a blanket, a blanket, a mat for. Uh, and uh, by making a mat that folds up into a certain dimension and rolled, given a certain size, then that sort of takes that position of the great coat. Well, the mess tin, well, what can I do with that? How can I incorporate that somehow? And I thought if you turn it on its end with the flat on the bottom and have this semicircular, you know, part uh, facing up, the sides being parallel, um, that might work for a shooting rest because, you know, typically uh, when rests are mentioned in, in that era, it's always in support of the back of the hand or the wrist as opposed to just resting the rifle on it. Uh, that notwithstanding, I thought that perhaps if we could raise it a little bit off the ground, then that would make for a really nice profile kind of uh, item to use in longer range or when you're working up, you know, and uh, got a new rifle and you've got to get a load developed for it, that uh, having that rest is very beneficial. But then when the equipment is being used and sort of seen on, on camera, then it sort of fills that role, that 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 position on your equipment of the mess. And so... I took that shape and sort of just went with it and added, a, as you say, four legs to it. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I can't remember the, in that video if I used the adjustability of it or not, but the, the top, it's actually in, I guess, six pieces, the four legs, the base, and then the top is adjustable for height as well. So huh. you can get up to, I think it's, is it about 11 inches high um, with the legs? Um, and, you know, if you're shooting uphill or downhill or something like that, that it, you happen to uh, being Predominantly, I shoot in the bush, so you know, a nice flat firing point is not necessarily always going to be there. Uh, but yeah, so it came out of that desire to sort of kind of hide in an historical way uh, an implement that I would use very regularly uh, it, and not just pull out, you know, some plastic thing you bought at the store and plop that down. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, it's just the way my mind works sometimes. And sort of a day and a half later of being in a shop and cutting and, and sewing and you know, drilling and gluing, and there it was. Yeah, an old-timey bipod, adjustable bipod too, not yeah. just a regular one, <laughs> adjustable. Yeah. But I did notice, yeah, you had, you put your hand uh, uh, under the rifle and you put that rest then was on your hand. So, uh, yeah, you stacked them in there, which was uh, which right. kind of so that, now, a, now I know why. A, yeah, yeah, that's a sort of predominantly, like even into the Second World War, the 1940s and whatnot, uh, when the rest is mentioned um, and specifically in the practices that the military used in the Great War and in World War II, that having the rifle rested is an integral part of some of the practices. And there's a specific mention that it's the hand or the arm that's rested, not the rifle. Mm-hmm. And so that is a common theme throughout military you know, marksmanship uh, of the era. Um, and so it's just something that I, I typically try and incorporate as opposed to you know drawing back and just letting it sit on top of the, the rest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was it was super interesting to watch. Uh, you know, one of the other things that it, it was on the same video, um, was something that uh, kind of blew me away was uh, blow tubing. Uh, 
<laughs> oh yes, yeah. It, the, if, I could, when you if I had a nickel for all the comments that were posted on those videos about <laughs> what I'm doing or what they thought I was doing or they thought they were funny making a joke about it, I'd be a rich man. Well, so uh, just for our listeners, blow to and and I'll I'll, I'll give the really bad uh, explanation. You can you can uh, maybe f- uh, follow up after me here. Was the, the idea that mm-hmm. blowing down the barrel to get some condensation on it so that the deposits would uh, be a little bit softer? Is that about the idea? That's exactly the idea. Yeah, like, except absolutely. you take that idea and and like go pro on it because you've got a piece of brass uh, and another angled three hundred three piece of brass that uses kind of like a mouthpiece. So you don't have, so you can get like a perfect seal and get just your your breath right down the the chamber on the bore of the rifle. Right. I mean, the uh, they, they existed historically. There's, I've got pictures from the 1870s and 80s and 90s. Uh, it's predominantly a, it's a black powder thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, black powder sort of was phased out in the 1890s uh, as a military uh, pr- propellant, but uh, uh, it's completely historical. It doesn't have a context in sort of uh, like actual battle, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. But what it does have a context in is marksmanship uh, and and competition. And in the eighteen uh, beginning in the around the eighteen sixties and all the way through, it, which is interesting, uh, people aren't necessarily aware. It was uh, shooting in in the UK specifically, and by extension, the rest of the empire was a very you know popular and emphasized sort of sport. And the military was ha- hand in hand with that. Uh, the National Rifle Association in the UK. Um, I, now, I, don't quote me on this, but I believe it predates the, the the same the organization, the same name in the United States. But the first, mm-hmm. famously, the first shot at the competitions uh, was fired by Queen Victoria from a rifle uh, that was sort of put together on a on a rest with big weights hanging below it, and she pulled a little silken cord and fired the shot, and the target is hanging uh, in Britain. Uh, 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 oh, now I'm just. Uh, having to remember the name. I'm sure there's somebody that'll be able to tell me or remind me where it's hung, but it, it's a period target, which is made of iron, six foot high by two foot wide with a big black bullseye. And you can see just off center where the, uh, where the round hit. So, um, you know, these, this, this culture of, of marksmanship was, is, uh, especially in that era, it was huge and it was integral to the military. So the blow tubing aspect really sort of finds its place there. Because you're not necessarily dealing with, uh, you know, sh- straight up military shooting, but you are in a comp- competitive environment trying to get a best score. And mm-hmm. uh, in order to do that, especially with black powder, uh, that you need to keep the fouling soft. Because if it gets hard, especially in hot weather and that kind of thing, that, it, you know, that's a, a hard deposit in, in the barrel. And then that will lead to the bullet not perhaps seating perfectly or as perfectly as it could be. Uh, in the bore and resulting in some inaccuracy. So there's a number of things that you black powder is, is sort of always fired with. And that is some sort of, it's often called lubricant, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but um, it's more fouling management. So as lubricant is opposed, as opposed to lubricating surface on on surface, it's incorporated into the cartridge or the, uh, in in the older cases into the muzzle loading cartridge uh, to keep the fouling soft. And that's what it's there predominantly to do. And after 1859, it is beeswax, pure beeswax. And that's used right through from the Enfield muzzleloading cartridges all the way through the Snyder and the Martini. And they all have some way of incorporating beeswax into the bore when you shoot to help keep the, the fouling soft. So that blow tubing is, I know it's a bit of a long-winded sort of introduction to it, I guess, but uh, it's something that I, I use in a, you know, when I'm trying to shoot my best as it, as it were. Yeah, and that, having that short, stubby little little piece on it instead of a tube, uh, I, f- I thought anyway that there's less of a chance of my breath condensing in the tube rather mm-hmm. than in the bore. So by getting closer to the breech, I can you know em- deliver as much moisture to the barrel as possible. Yeah, I mean, you see these little uh, tips and tricks that 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 modern shooters do. I mean, they'll they'll have like they'll they'll have a card on their barrel so that their their uh, scope doesn't pick up any mirage, and they'll have a bunch right. of other little weird things that they do to uh, to get their best shots off in a, in a competitive environment. That's kind of neat to see the old timey tips and tricks to, <laughs> to shooting a, a black powder rifle as accurately as possible, and uh, and that blue, blow tubing was uh, was one of them. And I mean, I, w- I would consider shooting a Martini Henry out to to 400 yards to be uh, pretty challenging, right? Iron sights, 
uh, you know, in terms of the cartridge, in terms of the velocity, like what, what kind of velocity are you getting out of a cartridge like that? Um, my, my, the ammunition that I've sort of developed, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. uh, obviously it's based completely on historical components and whatnot. Um, but there's small deviations just because it is the modern day. And, uh, you know, for instance, the, the case of a Martini Henry, uh, initially was made out of brass foil that was crimped and shaped. Uh, so Japan, that, no, right. That's a Japan uh, case. Well, the, the, the Japaning is just a term for a, basically like painting it black and giving it some sort of proofness against weather or rust or anything like that. So you see a Japaning applied to fabric, a Japaning applied to metal. Um, so the base uh, of the martini cartridge, as well as the Snyder for that matter, was uh, made of iron. So that part was Japan and it's black. Mm-hmm. It's like shiny black. But the rest was brass foil. And, uh, you know, just, just the way that you would roll anything, <laughs> a cigarette or anything like that, mm-hmm. is that uh, uh, in this process, the foil was coiled around a mandrel. And then the components introduced the you know the powder and whatnot and the bullet and then it was all crimped and put together. So when you look at a, an historical example of which you can do easily by looking on the internet, uh, it looks like it's really wrinkly and like what is that? It looks like it's been damaged almost, mm-hmm. but in fact it hasn't. Uh, so you know that's impossible. Well, not impossible, but it's impossible for any kind of normal person with normal access to components to reproduce. There's been some attempts to do that, but I mean, it was made on machinery. It wasn't made by hand and this kind of stuff in, in factories in, in the UK. So uh, there's always going to be differences. And then part of the, uh, getting those sort of differences up is having to work up your own loads and find out where your rifle's shooting because your velocities necessarily aren't quite the same. So the service velocity mm-hmm. of a Martini Henry is 1,300 feet per second, thereabouts. And mine shoot at uh, 12, uh, I'm just trying to remember, 1240, I think it was. Just, just over 1,200 anyway, which isn't actually that much, that different. So it's got the same kind of report. It's it, it Martini is a hefty, uh, you know, it's got a bit of a kick to it. Um, mm-hmm. It's not, you know, uncomfortable at all. But, uh, you know, when I get 1,200 plus feet per second, that's pretty close to historical. And it uses the same weight of powder. But, uh, um, you know, powder now is not quite what it was. And uh, gunpowder in the 19th century had evolved by the end of that century to be a, well, it was at its acme, really. Hmm. And most, I won't say all, but most uh, powders today don't come, they might come close, but not 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 to the standard of the, of the era. There are some brands that come very close and people would swear around the Swiss is an example of a very high quality uh, black powder, but I don't have necessarily access to that. And I use, I use GoX because it's what I have access to. So I use 85 grains of that in the martini cartridge, which is the historical weight that uh, it was used. So my velocity is a bit less. That to me indicates that, well, maybe the powder is not quite as energetic in, in one, in its componentry and in the results that you get. So, you know, the 1200 is, I'm certainly happy with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I get. And I, I try, I try to match the, the the construction of the cartridges and the various rifles uh, and with, with the service load of the era. I would say the one place I've deviated most significantly is in the, the Enfield muzzle loading world. And that is driven solely by accuracy. And that was a, that's that was my first journey into this whole thing was the Enfield rifle musket of 1853 pattern. So it's a sort of, I would say perhaps closest to my heart. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to do uh you have to do what you can with the components you have, uh, and uh, and doing a foil brass case would be a <laughs> pain in the butt, especially when it came to reload and, and you put that thing through your press. <laughs> well, yeah, and uh, you know, I, I've I've I don't have a mart- uh, a coil or a, a foil martini cartridge. I have a foil Snyder cartridge, and mm-hmm. it's I mean they're pa- they're it's not just empty like perhaps a modern round where you you know you can shake it and you hear the powder rattling around. The components are are packed is the wrong word, but they're there's no airspace in there. Mm-hmm. So when you squeeze the side of it, if you bear down on it, you'll deform it like really hard, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, just sort of drop it on the floor or something like that it's not going to be unusable. And the chambers of the rifles of the air and the dimensions of those cartridges were, were those were taken into consideration when they were developing the, 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 the measurements of everything so that they would fit properly. And also, uh, which is sort of a paradox in the case of the Martini Henry, it is quite a bit smaller than the chamber. Um, but this led to, and the construction of it, there were some issues in the 1880s that came to a head, given specific uh, environmental reasons that this foil cartridge was deemed to have uh, come into play in some unreliability issues. 
and very quickly within the course of a very short period of time, especially for the era, they ramped out uh, drawn cartridge uh, cases and produced ammunition and shipped it to where the the issues had developed, which is in the Sudan in Africa in the 1880s. So they did transition, but the foil cartridges, uh, it being sort of this curious methodology that came out of the 1860s uh, and was carried right on into the 1890s, really, uh, it was used right through the, the until the Martini went out of frontline service. Really? I would never have made guessed to the end. I would never have guessed that they would have lasted that long because it looked it looked like a stopgap thing between like just straight up like pouring powder in the muzzle and like and and ramrod for for components to uh, doing this brass foil thing for a little bit and then going straight to drawing cartridges. But thirty forty years sounds pretty pretty considerable. <laughs> well, the uh, especially when you take it all in context, you look at it as a standalone piece. You're like oh, you're kind of giving your head a scratch. But who would come up with this? Especially when you perhaps are, or, or, or believe that drawn cartridges or drawn cases have been around forever, but if you look at the construction of the Enfield muzzle loading cartridge, which is wrapped in paper and tied at the end, then if you take that concept of how you contain the components, being the bullet and the propellant, and in the case of muzzle loading cartridge, not the primer, but then if you incorporate a primer into it, then you know, well, if we use not just paper, we'll use something stiffer. Use use bra- maybe brass works, and you roll that around a mandrel instead of paper, and then you clamp that into a, a base, and it gets crimped, and then there's a primer. Then we have a place to put the primer in the base, and now we have a center fire cartridge that shoots a bullet that's basically the same, uh, difference in detail, but it's approximately the same weight and, and and whatnot. And don't forget, the Snyder, of course, is a conversion of the Enfield rifle musket. Uh, they mm-hmm. chop the back of the barrel off, and they screw that, they thread it, and screw it onto what they call the shoe. Um, which is uh, the Snyder's uh, in Canada anyway is, is kind of not a soft spot, but it, we used it from the very outset of its development. It was shipped to Canada uh, because of a perceived threat. Um, so it arrived in Canada in the same time frame as it arrived in the British regular army. But the thing is we kept it until the late 1890s instead of even transitioning to the Martini Henry. So we went straight from the Snyder, which is technology of the 1860s, straight to the Lee Enfield or the magazine Lee Enfield, the long Lee Enfield, as it were, in the late 1890s and, and then on into the Boer War. So we missed the Martini, the 45 caliber um, kind of generation of rifles. We completely, uh, in, in, in terms of a full service you know, capacity, completely bypassed. Um, so it, uh, you can see that how it evolved in somebody's mind and they thought this might work. And then mm-hmm. when it came time to then transition, because the Snyder was always designed as a stopgap, then to transition into the the 45 caliber world, which initially they, the first type of um, a cartridge that they thought of when it came to the Martini was a straight wall, much like a 4570. So it, apart from being not drawn, but it used that same construction technique. Uh, but they found that the, you know, it was so long to fit 85 grains of powder on top of a, a 480 grade bullet that using that methodology of making the case with the foil was, it made it too fragile. It was too long. It didn't have it kind of support and they then developed what is a very early form of bottleneck uh, cartridge in order to make it fatter and shorter and therefore more robust. And then you get the short chamber versus the long chamber martini. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, if, you, if you're familiar with the movie Zulu, I don't know if you are. I've seen there's, it. A line that, yeah. there's a line that uh, I, don't, I don't like usually making reference to it because it's so chock full of historical inaccuracies. But um, the actor who plays uh, John Chard, who's the engineer officer, says it, there's a comment about it was a miracle. And he says, if it was a miracle, it was uh, and he, he rattles off all the, spe- the specs of the cartridge. And in that in that little phrase he uses, he mentions short chamber boxer cartridge. And that's what he's referring to is that the initial trials pattern was this long skinny one that was fragile. So they shortened it up more robust. And as, as it stands, the back of the cartridge is a very similar dimension to the Snyder, the back of the Snyder cartridge. So the rim and the components are very similar in a, a dimension. So that's why the Martini in particular is referred to as a um, five, seven, seven, four fifty, mm-hmm. because the back was similar dimensions to the Snyder, which was five, seven, seven. And the front is 45 caliber nominal, nominal. And that's how we get all these weird cartridge weird designations. designations. <laughs> <laughs> that don't make any, they, they kind of made sense back in the day, but yeah. really like barely, barely made but any sense. Commonly misunderstood is that the, the Martini is a modification of the Snyder cartridge or the Snyder case. And it's not, 
It uses mm-hmm. similar dimensions, as you say, the rim and whatnot, but it's not a Snyder case that's been necked down. It's a, it's a whole brand new, you know, construction, new parts, the part, the parts are different sized and the components and whatnot. Um, but that, that five, seven, seven, four fifty aspect of it. And when you look at uh, the blank rounds of the era, for instance, are compatible in both because they're short and stubby and only uh, contain the sort of the, the, the part of the chamber that's the, the widest. Right? Yeah. So yeah. It, uh, uh, yeah, it's a curious, it, it kind of makes sense when you just step back much like the foil, the foil construction to look at the whole picture together and see how it evolved and they need a designation for it. So that's what they sort of came up with. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so what, what kind of series are you working on right now or, or what's the, uh, what's the topic du jour on your channel? The topic du jour, I guess, uh, Lately, I have been delving into a little bit of later stuff, uh, World War II driven or centric. That started with uh, your guest that you had on a couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, Mike from Blue Oak on the Range. Yep. And uh, he had, we had been discussing things back and forth. We talk pretty regularly. Uh, we have similar interests and similar, I think, sense of humor. We get along quite well, as, mm-hmm. as uh, our, our videos, I hope, would convey. But uh, he had made arrangements to come to my part of the world for a, a, a wedding. And uh, thought that maybe we could parlay that into uh, a bit of a side gig. And that did work out. And he came out and uh, we sort of had to pick something that he would be familiar with that I had or had access to sort of everything uh, that we needed. And we came up with uh, an agenda, as it were, of what we wanted to, to cover. And that focus, we, we decided that it was going to be a sort of a World War II themed kind of project. And um, I had at that date, I hadn't really even considered it, um, to be honest with you. Uh, I thought it was a little bit kind of outside of the channel's, you know, general just being the 19th century. Mm -hmm. But of course, before that, I dealt with the musketry of the First World War as well, which I found very interesting. Um, So I said, well, there's nothing that says I can't, and it could be interesting. And then we started looking into the documentation of it, and then it became very interesting because uh, by World War I, things had become very uh, comprehensive and Tackling that project was incredibly interesting to me. And being able to take that and some of the documents we found had some really interesting kind of, not niche, but things that you necessarily wouldn't expect to find in you know, World War II musketry. Uh, and we decided to tackle them. And the close quarter shooting of the era uh, and some other topics, we did some chat videos and whatnot about kit and sort of philosophy in terms of why things were the way they were and, and uh, d- delivery of musketry in certain eras and all that kind of stuff. I, I, his visit was, I had a great time. I think, I think he did had a good time too. I, mm-hmm. I, I know, I know. He did. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, that I, I, sort of started the world war two aspect of it. And I've just sort of been plugging along with that. And uh, uh, as I say, I try and, you know, take a rifle and then build sort of a, a world around it as far as the videos go. And that often, or I try anyway, to start off with some sort of introductory video to sort of here's this rifle and this is what it's, where it came from and what it's all about. It's by no means as comprehensive as say uh, uh, CNRSL, which I don't know if you're familiar with. But yeah, we've had a five on the show. Yep. Okay, perfect. So, you know, that I means we're talking about he deals into extreme amounts of detail uh, mm-hmm. and perhaps um, in one go. And, you know, my videos are sort of 20 20 minutes long, maybe. So um, rather than dealing with one rifle in one video, my rifle or my channel deals with one rifle in many videos, handling different aspects of it and pushing into the, the, uh, the shooting aspects of it. So yeah, my introductory practical. videos are certainly nothing like what, what Athias and, and they uh, produce. Yeah. You, um, you get a little bit more into the practical as well, right? So you mix not only the rifle, but the rifle with the kit, with the uh, period dress with all these things kind of put together. So hmm. uh, it's not just a rifle by itself or a rifle with a bipod just by itself. It's the whole kit and caboodle. <laughs> right. And that comes back into the, the sort of the military ac- uh, application of it. Right? So yeah, I, by exactly. means, I, I enjoy just, you know, shooting targets and target shooting to me is, is part of this. It's not necessarily by itself historical shooting um, unless you're shooting it in a, you know, a period competition style with the proper targetry and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, sitting at a, at a bench or lying on the ground and just trying for, you know, get good groups out of something. That's an aspect of what I do, because as mentioned before, all this ammunition is handmade and it, the different componentry, the different velocities that you get as a result of the different powder and, and whatnot, or if you're, you're looking to get more accuracy and sometimes service loads aren't as accurate as, as they can be. 
So by deviating slightly, I'd like to be as accurate as I can because I want to hit what I'm, I'm shooting at. And if that means deviating slightly in terms of velocity or powder charge, then I'm okay with that because the general concept that I use is is very similar to the service, you know, cartridge in that case. So it's uh, it's something that uh, how do you put it? It's just it you have to incorporate that target shooting kind of mentality at times. And then once you sort of finish that phase of working up a particular rifle with a particular particular load, well, then you can really delve into the historical because you're confident that your rifle is as accurate as you can get it and that the, it's going to perform the way it or as close to the way it should. So, um, you know, it's uh, in some of my videos, uh, I've done a, a kit series uh, because mm-hmm. people ask all the time where it comes from and where I get it and all this stuff. And of course, um, to try and present that in a way that, that uh, is one interesting and two I can just direct people to answer their questions the uh, part of those videos I've tried to sort of put what I do in the right context and it sort of hangs out in the middle between target shooting and like reenactment which of course doesn't use live ammunition it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily deal at all in most cases with actually shooting a rifle that's not to say that people who do that don't shoot but as far as the reenactment and the living history side of it goes, typically there is no shooting, blank rounds perhaps. Um, so it exists somewhere in the middle of that. And of course, that is a sliding scale. So it means different things to different people. And But there's some key aspects that, as I mentioned at the beginning, that I think that are sort of really core to, to what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a, a fantastic channel and, and really a, a really interesting way of... Uh, of kind of exploring those uh, those older rifles and the, the older uh, marksmanship uh, fundamentals. Um, just uh, before we let you go here, how do people find out about you? Uh, and uh, and what different uh, what different uh, social media platforms can people find you on? <laughs> well, in that regard, I would say that perhaps I'm a bit of a luddite, <laughs> but the channel is on YouTube, uh, British Muzzle Loaders, one word, uh, and uh, or you can Google the name of particular. 19th century rifles like Snyder's or Martini's or Enfield's mm-hmm. and you'll probably arrive there uh, by searching for them but also there's a Facebook page again of the same name British Muzzle Loaders and the links for both are typically in, yeah, incorporated into both the YouTube videos as well as the link to the channels in the Facebook page as well so but I'm, I'm, there's no Twitter there's no Instagram I'm not taking butt pictures in my kilt and putting them up so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just. I, <laughs> I mean, you might get a little bit more followers if you do, though. <laughs> Maybe the wrong kind, wrong, wrong audience. Well, you know, it's funny a story like that, not not about butt pictures, but uh, there was a particular video that entered into some logarithm somewhere, and it was uh, uh, if it wasn't the video you were speaking, it was shooting the martini at long ranges, and somehow uh, at the time the uh, battlefield one battlefield the one come out. you got triggered on battlefield one, yeah, right? And uh, because it. I found out later it has a martini component to it and it's some in the game it's some super weapon and it's just it's uh-huh. crazy that it would be incorporated into a world war one game because the only use of it was during the great war was to shoot down zeppelins with an incendiary bullet because they couldn't get an incendiary bullet that was big enough in a 303 caliber so they needed the 45 caliber etc cetera, etc cetera. but anyway i digress all of a sudden the, the that particular video was inundated with comments about um, i'm just trying to remember camping i think was one of them and nerfing <laughs> and and i at the time i had just no idea i i'm not particularly up on that culture um i have played those kinds of games in the past and i'm not a gamer by any means but these terms were not particularly familiar to me especially when we're dealing with historical musketry and it took a, a very kind individual to sort of come on and say i think rob doesn't know at all what you people are talking about and he took the time to explain it all about what camping means and why there was such virtual surrounding. Like, you know, people were at, swearing at me because I'm a camper. Because I'm, I was I'm so, in the video, I'm so of course, glad. lying at a firing point, shooting at 400 yards, trying to hit a target and not moving <laughs> around and whatnot. And yeah, then the I'm, other one was nerfing because uh, they thought, I guess at some point, the, the rifle was exceptionally powerful in the game. They reduced the and, power of it in the and game. They and they reduced the power of it, turning it into a yeah. nerf gun, which it makes complete sense when it, when I know what they're talking about, but I didn't at the time. So that was kind of a, maybe laugh. And, but the, the video went from, you know, a, a few tens of thousands of views over, it had been a year old or something at the time. Mm-hmm. And then it went right. Nothing I have goes through the roof, but it comparatively, it was around like 250,000 views or something, which was far and away at that time, you know, more than any other video on the channel. So yeah, exactly. Well, it, it makes it was, me it super happy that, uh, 
a bunch of Battlefield gamers uh, got introduced to uh, period correct kit and <laughs> and uh, an old timey marksmanship uh, through your channel by watching that. And video. there's no bipod on a martini ever. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, you get to wreck all their preconceived notions about what they can do in the game versus real life. But uh, right. that's so funny. That's yeah. awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, Rob. And uh, hopefully, you get to introduce more gamers to uh to old-timey uh, equipment and firearms and oh. uh, we'll be sure to put the uh, links to your youtube and facebook channel on the show notes thanks very much for having me awesome thanks rob thanks again to rob for coming on the show uh finally some listener feedback so on youtube there's not really a lot going on over there right now but uh if you do if you're listening to this uh, on a podcast app you can listen to or watch rather uh, watch us record live on Thursday nights and uh, you can comment on YouTube if you would like to um, in terms of listener feedback on emails we don't have any of that but if we did it would be sponsored by Armory DC Gunsmith Armory DC Gunsmith is a full service gunsmith who specializes in firearms refinishing he offers hot bluing parkerizing and Cerakote finishes as well as wood refinishing check out his online inventory of new and used guns firearms accessories optics and more at dcgunsmith.ca and check him out on facebook and instagram if you'd like to send the show an email send it to slamfireradio at gmail.com uh podcast app reviews we don't have any of those this week uh but if you'd like to go ahead and review us on iTunes. I think iTunes is the big one right now. I'm not sure if many of the other ones have ratings in there, but uh, we love uh, when uh, our listeners give us ratings and, and reviews on those apps. Uh, finally, shout outs. I've got a shout out to the guys uh, over at BSSA uh, for putting on a killer match. Like it was like it took a while to build. Like it, was, it was a lot longer of a build than I'm used to. But the quality of the match and the quality of the stages, like you could really feel it afterwards because those stages had so much of that freestyle, um, plan your stage out. There's many different ways of doing some of those different stages. And that that was something that was really interesting and really present uh, that was in their match. So uh, thanks again to those guys for putting on that match. I think it was uh, excellent. Uh, Patreon supporters, if you'd like to support us, uh, head on over to patreon.com forward slash slamfire radio. Uh, we send out, and I sent out a bunch last week. So if you're still waiting on a patch, send us an email. Uh, but uh, we send out patches and stickers to people who support us on Patreon. And that money, it turns out to uh, help us with hosting and uh, better AV equipment and that kind of thing. So we can do a better job for you guys. So if you'd like to support us, head on over to patreon.com. Uh, finally, if you don't want to uh, support us through that, but you're going to buy something from Cabell's anywhere, anyways, uh, head over to our website. There's a button there that uh, links to Cabela's, but it kind of tells Cabela's that we sent you. It's like, hey, by the way, this was these guys were are here because of Slamfire. And if you turn out and, and buy something on Cabela's, uh, Cabela's will kick us back like a couple of bucks. So it's a it's an easy way to support the show if you um, if you intend on buying something from Cabela's. Anyways, uh, join one or more of our national firearms associations, such as the CCFR. Check us out on Gunners of Canada and like us on Facebook. We're right around 2130 right now and uh finally we'll see you next week so if you have any comments or questions for the show please send an email to slamfireradio at gmail.com now go grab a gun and shoot something when the talking is over it's time to get a gun all right, for you guys who are sticking in with me, we're going to get this show rolling. It's going to be fast because it's just maybe I can make it slow. I can do whatever I want to. It's my show. <laughs> Ultimate power. <laughs> uh, I won't let it go to my head within the first five minutes. Maybe after that.